This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hey, hi everybody, how you doing out there? Ron Spomer, with the pleasure of reading another podcast for you guys. I really appreciate everyone who's been writing in and uh, claiming they enjoy these. I don't know if you're lying or not, but (laughs) I'm going to keep at it. Hey, I've got one today that's a little more philosophical than usual. I think it was published in a magazine called Under Wild Skies. That was around for a while and published by... Sporting Classics folks, uh, they do a great magazine at Sporting Classics, and they had this one going for a while. That's all the information I have on it. I can't find out what year it was, but I suspect it was back in the early 2000s or late 90s. But at any rate, I thought it would be fun to read because I am predicting the future of hunting in this article. It's called The Future of Hunting. A probing look at what lies ahead for the nation's 20 million hunters. And boy, that's down to more like 15, 16 million now. So it was a while ago, and I think I'm afraid some of my predictions are true, which is declining hunter numbers. And oh my goodness. So I thought we would read this and then afterwards discuss a little bit about whether I was off base or fairly accurate, and then maybe discuss from today's perspective what we all think the future of hunting in America might be. So let's just dive right into the future of hunting. Five years ago, the editor of a national outdoor magazine told me to hunt all I could, while I could, because our sport would essentially end in 10 years. The democratic door of public hunting in America was rapidly closing and would soon slam shut. Since then, cougar hunting has been banned in California, 
spring bear hunting in Colorado, and all bear hunting in Florida. Sportsmen in Idaho, Oregon, and Washington are fighting political movements to eliminate bear and cougar hunting. Idaho sheep, mountain goat, and moose hunters are restricted to a lifetime bag limit of one of each species. Washington residents are limited to hunting elk during one season with one weapon, rifle, muzzleloader, or bow. Idaho is considering similar restrictions. Meanwhile, the odds for drawing a pronghorn tag in Wyoming's best trophy unit is as poor as 1 in 10. Sage grouse seasons have been shortened to just two weeks across much of the West, a few days in some states, eliminated in Washington and South Dakota. Bob whites have disappeared over much of their southeast range. Mountain quail, once one of the most abundant upland game birds in Idaho, can no longer be hunted in that state. Woodcock are declining in the northeast, lesser prairie chickens in Kansas, even in Alaska, the last great wilderness state, moose tags must be won by lottery in many units. Clearly, hunting opportunities are in steep decline. Or are they? Canada goose and snow goose numbers are at their highest in generations. Whitetails continue to thrive in the east, midwest, and south, where seasons run as long as four and a half months. Moose hunts have recently opened in several northeastern states. Elk numbers are reaching modern highs throughout the west. Pheasant hunting in South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas is better than it's been since the 1950s. Record rainfall and CRP grass cover has enabled ducks to bounce back dramatically. Turkeys are filling new habitat yearly, and caribou are swarming over the Northwest Territories where they were scarce just a few decades ago. Reports of the impending demise of hunting may have been exaggerated, but they certainly aren't invalid. In a world where the growth of technology is succeeded only by the growth of the human population, things wild and free cannot long prosper. As wild things and wild places go, so goes hunting. Having been a hunter for 30 years, an information and education worker for two wildlife agencies, and a hunting conservation writer since 1976, I've developed educated opinions about the future of hunting, and they are rather dark. Not everyone, however, shares them. And nearly everyone agrees that hunters in particular, and society in general, can do much to reduce threats to our cherished privilege of hunting. With dedication, persistence, and an incredible amount of work, hunting could remain viable and acceptable well into the 21st century. The fact that hunters are still active and respected in crowded European countries such as Germany and England suggests some version of the tradition can survive in the land of Daniel Boone and Teddy Roosevelt. As I see things, hunting faces the following challenges. Human population growth. Without question, this is the crux of the matter. It creates all other problems. If there were 3 million instead of nearly 300 million people in North America demanding and consuming natural resources, the continent would be overflowing with game just as it was 600 years ago. But few of us would be around to enjoy it. 
Our challenge then is to manage our population just as we manage deer to prevent overcrowding and overbrowsing. Mankind isn't about to starve itself into extinction. But the more people this nation supports, the fewer wild animals it can shelter. More than one million souls are added to the U.S. population annually. If just 1% takes up hunting, that's 10,000 additional hunters. Is there room for them in your duck blind? Habitat loss. The magnitude of this problem cannot be overstated. Bill Stevens, manager of conservation programs for Federal Cartridge Corporation, admitted, habitat loss is the scariest thing for all of us. As habitat is lost, wildlife is lost. As wildlife is lost, hunting is lost. Everyone worries about the declining numbers of hunters, but if you lose the habitat, you lose your place to hunt, Stevens said. If there's an opportunity to hunt, people will hunt, but they can't hunt if they don't have anywhere to go. According to Billy Higginbotham, Associate Professor of the Department of Wildlife and Fishery Sciences at Texas A&M University, habitat loss remains the greatest threat to our nation's wildlife. Decline in the quality and quantity of habitat may be inevitable due to population growth and urbanization. Of course, people need places to live, food to eat, cars to drive, highways, appliances, and shopping malls. Heaven forbid we should run out of shopping malls. Tom Woodruff of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation recently noted that 90,000 acres of agricultural land and 225,000 acres of wildlife habitat are lost annually to development in Colorado alone. Essentially, that's deer, elk, bear, cougar, and cottontails being traded for houses, driveways, streets, dogs, cats, and horses. In my Idaho neighborhood, everyone seems to be bulldozing roads to new homesteads in woods and fields where the only thing to go up faster than the house and horse barn are the no hunting signs, which are soon superfluous because five horses in that fenced pasturette quickly graze vegetation to within a millimeter of its roots. Three cats and a couple of free-ranging dogs catch or chase off any lingering critters. Nationwide, millions of acres are thus sacrificed each year. Over half the wetlands in the country have already been destroyed and developers are trying to clear the way to eliminate more. Anyone brazen enough to point this out risks being branded a wacko environmentalist extremist who loves spotted owls more than his own kind. Buffalo chips. That accusation is a smokescreen designed to obscure the real problem of habitat loss, which is plenty of average conservative hunters recognize and decry. Sure, we all need and want a decent place to live, but does it have to be on prime elk wintering grounds, the banks of a trout stream or the shores of a waterfowl nesting lake? Do we all need five acres of overgrazed horse pasture and two acres of bluegrass lawn? It's rather hypocritical of hunters to expect farmers to leave weedy, brushy cover for wildlife while we spray and annihilate the vegetation from front porch to the end of the driveway. When do we have enough summer homes? Enough ski resorts, tennis courts, swimming pools, super highways, and parking lots? Americans cannot blindly convert all of nature into real estate and expect to continue hunting. As destructive as land consumption for housing is, other losses may be worse. As world population continues to explode, our wild lands are converted to monoculture cropland to feed those billions. 
Rivers are dredged and rerouted to funnel irrigation water to deserts that once produced gambles, quail, and mule deer. Productive river valleys are inundated behind hydropower dams to provide more energy so we can open our garage doors without having to step outside. Mountains are strip mined for minerals to produce jet skis and computers, like the one processing this article. If you think wildlife habitat is at a premium now, wait until third world families step up to our wasteful living standards. Sure, everyone loves to make money in a booming economy, but when that economy is fueled by the destruction of wildlife, we pay an excessive price for our luxuries. Urbanization According to J.D. Hare, president of the National Wildlife Federation, half of our citizens live in cities with populations over 1 million. Not many of them are able to whistle up the dog and stroll out to the back 40 to pot a rabbit for supper. Kids grow up on asphalt and concrete, never having the chance to catch frogs in the creek, build forts back in the woods, hunt squirrels with grandpa. As a result, the hunting tradition dies, replaced with the worldview of Hollywood. Hunters are ignorant, cold-hearted, bloodthirsty, tobacco-spitting, four-wheel-drive goons at best. Children and adults are bombarded with this message in movies, cartoons, television programs, school classes, newspapers, and books. Hare noted that hunting is a rural lifestyle passed on in traditional family units, mostly by fathers. Increasingly, children are being raised in single-parent families, one in four. And that parent is more often a mother than a father. Thus, children are not being brought into the ranks of hunters. The average age of the U.S. hunter is about 38. What happens when they quit or die? The anti-hunting movement. The antis take advantage of and magnify all the above problems. Millions of urban Americans who have been brainwashed by popular myths and who have minimum contact with nature are easily swayed by anti-hunting misinformation. A study of Texas school children revealed that those from urban communities scored significantly lower on nature knowledge tests than did rural students. Anthropologist and author Richard Nelson, who lived and hunted with the Eskimo hunters on Alaska's Arctic coast, feels that the growing anti-hunting movement reflects society's increased distance from the environment, diminished awareness of how we interact with it, and denial of basic biological processes. Chris Madsen, editor of Wyoming Wildlife Magazine and one of the country's most insightful conservation essayists, sees the anti-hunter-hunter debate as a battle for the 80% of uncommitted voters, and he fears that hunters might be doing more damage to their own cause by their general behavior than anti-hunters are doing. Well, where there's smoke, there's fire. Especially worrisome to Madsen is declining access to wild lands, coupled with drastically increased crowding on public hunting areas. If you have to travel halfway across a state to find game, I think increasingly more people will say it's not worth the effort, Madsen said. He's also concerned about localized declines in upland game birds and waterfowl and rabbits, staples of average hunters and species that introduce many young people to the sport. If we find ourselves in seven years without CRP, the Federal Conservation Reserve Program, 
Upland bird hunters in much of the Midwest are going to not have only a problem with access, but they're going to have a problem finding any game to hunt, Madsen noted. If hunters stop hunting, license sales decline and fish and game agencies reduce management, habitat purchases, and law enforcement. If hunting participation drops, PNR excise taxes on guns and ammunition decline, which reduces wildlife funding even farther. Less funding and management decrease wildlife populations, which forces more frustrated hunters to take up another pastime. It's a downward spiral that only an anti-hunter could love. Solutions. Human nature being what it is, our biggest stumbling block to the perpetuation of hunting, too many people, is the least likely to be addressed, let alone solved. The issue is either too overwhelming or too politically hot for most organizations to tackle, so they do the next best thing, they ignore it and treat the symptoms. This being reality, I will drop the topic of overpopulation with this final warning. If the human population continues to grow toward its projected doubling, that's 10 billion people, by 2050, our wild game will be severely jeopardized and hunting will be virtually extinct. This sounds harshly pessimistic, but there it is. Starving people don't pay a lot of attention to no trespassing signs. National parks and wildlife preserves in the third world countries are routinely plundered for firewood, cattle forage, and fresh meat. Professional hunter Rod Smith of Zimbabwe recently said that the exploding human population in southern Africa will eventually overrun its parks and reserves, bringing an end to managed hunting there. Politicians in the U.S. are already offering to sacrifice our parks and wildlife refuges for grazing rights and oil and mineral development. What do you want, jobs or wildlife? A concerted education campaign about the dangers of unlimited procreation is desperately needed, but I'm not holding my breath until one begins. Let us now turn to holding actions, things we can do to stem the inevitable tide, beginning with habitat protection. The conservation community is not about to divert Americans from their love of luxury. Corporate America actually thrives on that dependence, so look for habitat pressures to get worse before they get really bad. Local habitats could be preserved via strong zoning regulations that prevent scattered rural housing and commercial developments in sensitive wildlife areas. Communities such as Estes Park, Colorado and Minneapolis, Minnesota have proven that people can coexist with big game, mule deer and whitetails, and wetlands within city limits, but hunting within those limits is almost always forbidden. Sportsmen must sound the alarm regarding haphazard development. We cannot continue to destroy our backyards, then run elsewhere to hunt because elsewhere is someone else's backyard. Land use planning and zoning can do much to preserve open spaces for wildlife and hunting. The second thing we must do is lobby our elected officials to increase public wildlife habitat such as state hunting lakes, woods, fields, and big game wintering grounds. When the South Dakota pheasant population crashed under fence-to-fence -fence crop production in the mid-1970s, I continued to enjoy excellent shooting on federal waterfowl production areas. 
Such public hunting grounds have provided millions of hours of recreation and introduced hundreds of thousands of hunters to the sport. Yet politicians have recently railed against such publicly owned lands. Idaho has gone so far as to prevent private property owners from selling their land to state or federal agencies for wildlife habitat without first begging permission from their county commissioners. Talk about Big Brother sticking its fingers into private affairs. Maybe it's time we told politicians that hunting generates $14 billion in business in the U.S. each year. According to Bob Delphay of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, that is more than the annual sales of Hewlett-Packard, Johnson & Johnson, and Goodyear Tire and Rubber. The movie Batman 2 made headlines when it grossed $43 million during its first week, DeLay noted in a speech to the Governor's Symposium on North America Hunting Heritage in 1992. Hunting grossed nearly $80 million that same weekend. And every weekend since... It is time for politicians to treat and respect hunting like the big business it is, but it's our job to educate them. While local habitat protection is critical to preserving small game waterfowl, upland birds, turkeys, and whitetails, wilderness protection is essential for maintaining big game like elk, moose, sheep, and grizzlies. Currently, there are 22 million acres of de facto wilderness in Utah alone that could be protected for wildlife. Yet, congressional delegates from the Beehive State propose protecting only 2 million of those, giving the rest to all-out development, grazing, off-road vehicle joyriding. There's nothing wrong with controlled grazing or a jeep ride through the boonies. But 98% of the lower 48 is already open to those uses. Only 2% is protected as wilderness. I suggest that 20 years from now, we will find it infinitely easier to find a place to graze cattle and ride a motorcycle than hunt a trophy mule deer. Our western lands have been cut, mined, grazed, scraped, and exploited for 200 years. It's time we identify the critical wildlife habitats in this dwindling landscape and protect them for the future. We can always open them to exploitation in times of national crisis or when we decide we no longer value wild sheep, elk, mountain goats, and black bears. We could even combine prudent, careful resource extraction with wildlife habitat protection and enhancement if industry, environmentalists, and pandering politicians would stop squabbling and polarizing the issues. This is not a choice between jobs or wildlife. With good management, we can have both. One of the hottest tactics for preserving open space, traditional ranching, and wildlife habitat is the conservation easement, as practiced by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and many other conservation groups and government agencies. According to Tom Woodruff, the conservation easement is a legally binding deed that restricts certain uses on a property, such as subdividing, overgrazing, clear-cutting, etc. The property remains in private hands, stays on the tax rolls, and can be sold or inherited, but because its commercial value is reduced by that easement, owners avoid most capital gains taxes. For many ranchers, it's the only way to keep land in the family and free from development. To date, some 750,000 acres nationwide have been protected by such easements. If these programs expand, we could protect substantially more wildlife habitat. 
This exciting development could be the salvation for big game in the West. Spread the word. As public hunting lands continue to decline, more sportsmen will turn to private property. According to Billy Higginbotham, 80% of our wildlife lives on private lands. Because of this, Higginbotham believes that the private landowner will be the decisive factor in the salvation of wildlife in this country. Unfortunately, those animals are at the mercy of the marketplace. Should a pheasant preserve or whitetail ranch suddenly be more valuable as a producer of soybeans, alfalfa, or even topsoil, its owner may sacrifice his wildlife for a more lucrative crop. Equally disturbing are potential genetic problems. Carefully managed herds behind a high fence may lose the genetic traits that made them wild and strong. Free exchange of genetic material is essential for long-term survival. Species not in great demand might lose out altogether. Who, for instance, is going to manage a ranch for grizzly bears or bighorn sheep? The essence of hunting, its wildness and its unpredictability, may be lost under artificial controlled situations. Despite these unsavory possibilities, private land hunting has great potential across most of the country. By charging for hunting, farmers can afford to leave weed patches, shelter belts, sloughs. Tom Garrett and Tom Olson at the Outpost Lodge near Pierce, South Dakota, lease pheasant-rich fields from various farmers, then charge hunters daily guiding fees. The result is productivity equal to preserve shooting, but with all wild birds. Jim Monfort at South Dakota Pheasant Acres near Armour takes another approach, grooming his land for optimum pheasant production, with grain production taking the back seat. As a commercial preserve, South Dakota Pheasant Acres can accommodate sportsmen from September through March, well beyond the state's hunting season. In places where natural wildlife production has been severely compromised by habitat loss, commercial preserves are growing in popularity and will continue to do so. A new directory lists 116 pages of bird shooting preserves, wonderful places to sharpen your gunning skills, train dogs, and introduce newcomers to the sport. Ralph Brendel of Riverbend Sportsman's Resort in Fingerville, South Carolina, provides upland bird hunting in an area where native quail numbers have crashed. Quail Unlimited is doing a great job bringing back bobwhites, but it's a slow process, Brendel said. We provide a place for people who don't have the time to research wild bird hunting opportunities or simply can't find a place to hunt, and we're open a lot longer than the state season. Brendel does his bit to perpetuate hunting by hosting a camp for kids aged 10 through 16, providing state-certified hunter safety training as well as shooting instruction. John Barsity at Millox Hunting Lodge near Onomia, Minnesota, thinks private operations like his will preserve the sport of hunting in the future, provide a place and opportunity to keep the tradition going after traditional hunting grounds are crowded out with more and more people. Big game hunting can also persist on private lands. Western ranchers have already learned that managing their cattle herds conservatively so as to benefit elk results in as much income from hunters as from cattle. The same can be done with mule deer and pronghorns. In recent years, many private landowners have managed to produce better quality game and hunting than states have on public land. Texas whitetail ranches are a great example. 
The catch-22 of privatized hunting is that it might limit the players. As costs go up, participation goes down. And as the number of hunters drops, support for hunting declines with it. Sales of hunting gear slump, license dollars plummet, management programs suffer, and everybody loses. Wildlife manufacturers, hunters, and non-hunters. Teddy Roosevelt warned against this in Outdoor Pastimes of an American Hunter. It is entirely within our power to preserve large tracts of wilderness and to preserve the game for the exercise of the skill of the hunter, whether he is or is not a man of means. The people as a whole can preserve the game and can prevent its becoming purely the property of the rich. Jim Poswitz, author, hunter, philosopher, and founder of Orion, the Hunter's Institute, worries that we sit silently while a new caste system evolves in American hunting. He feels strongly that commerce and conservation are not comfortable companions, and that special privilege privatization, domestication, artificialization, and even pharmaceutical quackery are depredating and parasitizing a resource that belongs to itself and is held in trust for all the people. One of the reasons Europeans moved to the New World was to escape the tyranny of kings who reserved all hunting for themselves. While privatization can and certainly will play a role in the future of hunting, we must guard against its dark side. If Joe Public is not allowed to hunt, he may vote against it. Battling the anti-hunters will likely continue indefinitely. These people will not go away, nor do they need to. We must marginalize them by raising our own public image. This will require intense and continuing education plus high ethical behavior by all hunters which plays off the ancient tradition of hunter as hero. Lurking in most people is the association of hunting with the leather stocking myth, Madsen said. As long as we can prove up to that standard, demonstrate strength, endurance, knowledge of the outdoors and wild species, and commitment to conservation, we can gain advantage from that relationship in the public mind between Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, and modern hunters. In other words, don't try to outshout the antis. Co-opt them. Prove to the public that we are what we claim. Protectors of wildlife and wild places. Lovers of and participants in nature's cycle of life and death. Honorable men and women, the kind of conservationists who began the national park system, national wildlife refuges, non-political fish and game agencies, the hunters who brought back the turkey, wood duck, pronghorn, and elk, the hunters who are footing the bill for conservation, protecting wetlands, reintroducing bighorns. Image and ethics are the key. According to the Isaac Walton League, this includes not only individuals but also manufacturers, conservation organizations, and federal resource agencies. What image of hunting does the general public form when it sees an advertisement for a rugged, looming ATV steered by a macho, camouflaged hunter smeared with grease paint? Daniel Boone? I don't think so. It may be time to begin limiting technological advantages in hunting. It is time, no, it's past time, to drive the boors, the poachers, and the slobs from the field. Zero tolerance. Currently, non-hunters equate poachers and vandals with hunters because the terms are used interchangeably in news reports, as in, 
Hunters were arrested for vandalizing a park comfort station and poaching two deer, one of which was carrying twin fawns. We must pressure the media to report more accurately, including hunter conservation success stories. It's not an easy task given the nature and bias of news media, but it's essential. Perhaps it is also time to require more than a $20 license to become a hunter. We are seen as incompetent slobs because some of us are. Hunter safety classes for kids are not enough. We need an apprenticeship system. Training in outdoor ethics, nature study, wildlife behavior, tracking, shooting, meat care, the works. We need to include women, many more women. Some 78% of PETA members are women. Fewer than 10% of hunters are. That must be changed. Given the opportunity, many women love to hunt, and they bring to the sport a caring, dedicated, nurturing attitude that can do wonders for the image of hunters. According to Chris Chaffin of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, conservation organizations and shooting sports manufacturers have organized to begin the long campaign to preserve hunting. They met last March at a shooting sports summit, wrestled with many of the problems facing these activities, and came away inspired and enthusiastic. Among their ideas, one, promote family involvement in hunting and shooting. Two, develop communication systems to help hunters feel good about their sport and to present hunting in a positive way. Three, encourage state and wildlife agencies to make hunting more user-friendly, such as a toll-free number for all information on seasons, bag limits, license requirements, etc. Also, simplifying regulations and make licenses easier to purchase. As things stand now, you have to be a dedicated fanatic to wade through all the licensing procedures. Number four, public service ads on our family hunting heritage. Hooray, we get to play offense for a change. Number five, introduce the hunting tradition to minorities. By 2018, minorities will comprise the largest percentage of the U.S. population. Number six, develop shooting sports celebrities. Imagine what Michael Jordan of the Chicago Hunters could do for positive PR. Number seven, increase shooting facilities and make them more user-friendly. Annually, some three million young people are introduced to shooting by 4-H, Boy Scouts, FFA, etc., then abandoned with no facilities to pursue the sport. There is a basketball hoop and tennis court in every park. How many shooting ranges? Number eight, toll-free number and webpage for complete information on shooting and hunting. Number nine, innovative campaign to introduce a friend to hunting and shooting. And number 10, develop new, exciting shooting games everyone can play. Finally, number 11, advertise and promote the shooting sports. Judd Cooney, big game outfitter, writer, photographer, and the president of Outdoor Writers Association of America, suggests that many state wildlife agencies are hindering new hunter recruitment because of age restrictions. States like South Dakota that don't let kids hunt until they are 12 years old are blowing it, Cooney said. By then, they're hooked on video games and the mall. You've got to get them started when they're eager. Seven or eight, there's no reason they couldn't hunt then while under the immediate supervision of an adult. They have the hand-eye coordination. Dad or Grandpa can provide the judgment and control. Hunting is by no means lost. There are dozens of ways we can work to save it. The biggest challenge is to mobilize, get hunters off their butts and into the streets onto the airwaves. 
This is difficult for individuals attracted to an activity that represents freedom and escape from everyday drudgery. But freedom comes at a price. Pay it or suffer the consequences. The least each of us can do is, one, clean up our act. Be the best we can be, ethical to a fault, dedicated to excellence in our craft. Two, join hunter conservation organizations such as Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, Rocky Mountain Elk, etc. Number three, speak out. Write letters to the editor, alert the media to positive hunting stories, rattle our congressmen's cages, insist on programs that save habitat, not destroy it. Number four, introduce wives, husbands, children, neighborhood kids and friends to hunting and shooting. And number five, vote for the candidates who support scientific wildlife management and hunting. If each of us gets involved now in 40 years, we may meet in the woods with our grandkids and shotguns. If we shirk our responsibilities, we'll meet with our grandchildren to watch Bambi on a big screen. Wow, that was quite a while ago. That must have been around 1993 or so that that I wrote that. Um, And some of these things have happened, but I also see lots of improvements. What do you think? Well, I'm sort of overwhelmed. I mean, there was so much in that article, I don't even know where to begin. I wanted to stop you in the middle and go, wait, what? That, that doesn't make sense, or that's right. Uh, so one of the things that stuck out to me is the amount of women who are now in the hunting industry. Yeah. And, that, and that's huge. <clears throat> yeah, that jumped out at me too, because that re- we really have done well there. And I don't know if it's so much what we've done, or it's the simple fact that women gravitated to it on their own. You know, once a few of them got a little high profile and the other ones felt like, well, I guess I can do this without getting teased or run down or whatever. I think we made it a lot easier for them. Once a few broke the mold, broke that glass ceiling, they really came on strong. So, yeah, that's just done wonders for hunting. Well, it does wonders for hunting and for the kids and you know where we are in, at the at this time in the midst of a pandemic i mean i think one of the things that stuck out to me uh, again is people are going to want to go get their own food mm-hmm. they're not going to want to be dependent on the grocery store if the supply chain breaks just like it did you know a couple weeks ago maybe a couple months ago when meat was you know uh in short supply yeah so i so i think there's just a little bit of change in the importance of hunting now how long it lasts after the pandemic goes away who knows yeah and another good plus for hunting is increase in ammunition and firearm sales oh see there's a self-imposed tax that hunters got passed through congress way back in i think the 30s or the 50s or sometime pitman robertson funds and that is Every box of ammunition is taxed at a small percentage. I think it's 11%. And firearms. And that money goes towards wildlife habitat, wildlife management, fish and game agencies, and all that stuff. That's a huge source of funding. And when panicking people, like right now, we just set a record for the most firearms, new firearms buyers in history. And millions of people bought their first firearms because of all the craziness going on, the anarchy going on in the cities. So, yeah, they may be buying self-protection firearms but that that money that tax dollar is still going to good wildlife habitat protection so that's good news you know there was so much in that article i should take a note yeah i was thinking the same thing but i can't read and take notes at the same time well, i know i thought well when's this going to be over it can't be that long but it was uh, the things that I'm, I'm thinking about uh is the private land 
Um, we, we are fortunate enough to have some land that we can hunt, but not everybody is. And if you're on a limited budget and there's limited public lands, you may get discouraged because there isn't the opportunity and the game to go hunting. You're absolutely right. And as you've noted, even though we've got a fair, fairly sized ranch here, there's not enough game and hunting on it for our family, you know, the, the kids and the grandkids will be coming along. We've got to continue to develop the habitat on here. You know, it's good ranch country, but we've got to turn it into outstanding wildlife country. And I think every individual landowner needs to do that, including, as I intimated in that article, urban and suburban people with their bluegrass lawns. You know, there are excellent programs and instructions on how you can make your little patch of bluegrass into something a lot more valuable to wildlife. No, you might not have elk and grizzly bears living on it. You wouldn't want grizzly bears living Yeah, yeah, but you can have rabbits and squirrels and all kinds of songbirds, and it all contributes to a healthier environment. So, yeah, individual work on habitat like that is important. But, again, nobody's going to be hunting in your backyard, although some cities now, many, are loosening up on deer hunting because people have gotten fed up with all the deer and now increasingly even elk feeding in their backyards. So fairly sizable cities have opened up for bow hunting right in town. If somebody's uh, private yard, if they say, hey, it's okay for a guy to hunt, you can get in a tree stand and sit up there and shoot deer with a bow. So I think that's a pretty sensible approach. But of course, that doesn't really improve the habitat and that's what really really strikes me since I wrote that I just would like to have numbers on how much habitat has been lost just around say Denver because when when I was writing that I was flying into that old Stapleton airport in Denver just a little bit west of town and now that's miles and miles away from the new airport beyond which was pronghorn habitat and prairie dogs and now you fly in and you look beyond it and it's housing, new ones going up everywhere. And up and down that front range from Fort Collins all the way down to Colorado Springs, it's crazy. Yeah, it, it's, it is, you know, habitat. You know, you talked about malls and, you know, the use, they, you know, destroy habitat. And I was, when you said that, I was thinking, well, maybe malls may be something in the past. You know, yeah, now they are. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a big change. Like, I mean, I think... I actually think we don't know what the pandemic uh, is going to do to our society and how it changes and how it changes um, habitat and hunting. I mean, I think we just have no clue because we're in the midst of it. Do you, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think we have clues, but I think it could surprise us. We might think it's going one direction, it goes the other. Like you've noted, people are suddenly saying, maybe I should... uh, hunt for my food rather than hope that the grocery store gets its supply. And the same with gardening. People are starting to take responsibility for their own lives, and getting your food is definitely one of those. So I think hunting has is, is got a new lease on life. And even before the pandemic hit, you were seeing uh, city folks, uh, hipsters, I think they call them, that wanted to hunt. And they wanted to hunt because of the organic meat. Well, and that's true. And there's also that whole push of the extreme hunter. Go out and really, you know, climb that mountain. Yeah. You know, be as physical as you possibly can in, in search of your in your game. Yeah, and that's encouraging too because 
over the well, the last half of the 20th century, especially, you got into this Hunter S. Bubba, you know, an overweight, oh, yeah. overweight individual riding around shooting out of the window or sitting in a, a blind. And, you know, it just wasn't a good look. It wasn't that what some of the guys here in the article called the Daniel Boone or the, you know, the, the real hunter who people admired, the, the pioneers who settled the country and the North American, uh, well, all of the Native Americans before the Europeans got here were hunters. You know, they lived with the land. There was plenty of wildlife, even though there were plenty of people hunting and it was a hunter-gatherer society or culture. We had wildlife because they were using it sustainably. Well, we come along and we try to convert everything into comfort and cities and all the things that we have grown to think we need and love at the expense of wildlife and wild places. Well, I think there's something in all of us that want to pit ourselves against something. And I think the uh, a younger generation, probably the you know twenty to fifty year olds, really want to get out and see how how much they can stress their body and also be successful in hunting. I think you see that in a lot of the high well, I don't know if they're high end, but the the videos that they've taken with the four Ks and the red red cameras to to really evoke a certain kind of emotion um, for the. Yeah, that's a good point, and that is encouraging. I see more and more of that. These young people, like you say, they want to test themselves, but not just against an artificial foe like a, a game, a football game or something. Yeah, that's still fine and dandy, but I think they realize that the ultimate test of your manhood or, or, your, or womanhood is your interaction with nature itself. You know, That's the old line about man against man, man against himself, man against nature, the three big deals in literature, those are the conflicts that are universal. And man against nature, I think, has been revised a bit to be man surviving with nature. You know, it's you tend to think of, well, we're going to go out there and defeat nature, like the mountain climbers. I've climbed X number of 20,000 peaks and such. They're defeating nature. Well, when you do that as a hunter, then you're looked down upon because you defeated or destroyed nature. No. That's a good that's not what we want to do as hunters. We want to share with nature and sh- prove that just as the cougar and the wolf can live with nature by doing what it does to survive, we can do the same without destroying nature and converting it into all the domestic things that we use. I think that's the big draw. And tied in with it is this innate desire to reconnect with the mystery. Yeah, the beauty and the mystery of nature that it's hard to articulate. And I know plenty of hunters who seem pretty rough around the edges and crass, and it's just like, hey, let's go get them. This is the fastest and bestest way to do it. But you catch them in an unguarded moment, and I have literally seen tears in their eyes just from seeing something beautiful when we're out hunting, like a sunset when it's particularly beautiful or or a senseless destruction of, of wildlife or wild places are particularly remember one big bubba type who was watching the bulldozers destroy the swamps he hunted in as a boy oh man that would that would absolutely get to your heart yeah that was so moving i I think it was just squirrel hunting there maybe duck hunting or something but you know you look at the guy and there's tobacco coming down his chin he's just another redneck bubba wants to go out and kill stuff but when they brought those bulldozers in and destroyed the last vestige of wild in his neighborhood, brought that man to tears. 
And now that's the kind of message that needs to get out about what hunters really are and what they really value. And when you understand and appreciate things like that, I think there is hope. Um, all the things that we covered, some things happened as bad as I predicted, and some things actually got better. So I think there's hope. Well, when you when you were reading the article, I thought you must have been in a dark time in your life because it was pretty, you know, for the first part was pretty negative, like, oh my gosh, the half glass aspect. Yeah, yeah. And, and I thought, it's it's not that bad, it's going to turn around, but that's my half full view of life, and, and, I, and I'm hopeful. Yeah. I'm really and... hopeful because I think, I think families, mothers and fathers are concerned about where their food comes from and with good reason. And so they don't want the pesticides, they don't want the hormones, they, they want the organic. And what is more organic than venison mm. or elk steak or growing your own garden or having your own chickens like we do and knowing what we're feeding them so that that produce, which are the eggs, that we know where they're coming from. Mm. So I think people are more into being responsible for what they consume and how they consume it. Good points, honey. I hope that uh, continues. I hope this little epidemic we're having now is really slap. Not, not the epi- not pandemic, but the pandemic epi- epidemic. Epi- what? Well, you said I hope the epidemic. Never mind. Go ahead. I hope the results of this pandemic will uh, continue that line of thought because I I think our society has, had gotten way too far away from nature and, and just. You expect you throw a switch and everything's going to be wonderful, right? Somebody else is going to take care of the problems. We, I think we're past that now. So we all understand that we have to be a part of the solution. We can't just sit by and let it happen or not happen. And I think hunters definitely understand that now more than ever. So uh, let's all continue to have a good outlook and uh, try for the best, expect the best, but work for the best. We still have to work on saving habitat and managing things properly and reducing that population because no matter how many parks we preserve, how much habitat we preserve, you add another billion or 10 people and you're going to have to sacrifice some of that habitat for those people. So we need to get that under control as well. Difficult as that topic is to address, it just has to be done. Because this is a finite planet, there's only so many acres. All right, so Ron Spomer and his sidekick, Betsy, once again. Or Betsy and her sidekick, Ron. Okay, let's be realistic about it. Betsy and her servant, Ron, (laughs) we're glad to to have uh, presented this podcast for you guys. And we sure enjoyed you joining us and listening in. If you have any ideas or suggestions, you can comment. Reach us at ronspomeroutdoors.com website. Drop some comments there. Uh, Find us on Instagram and Facebook and comment as well there. And check out the Patreon app. We uh, invite you to join the Ron Spomer Outdoors community on Patreon and be a part of all of this. Send in your suggestions and ideas and we'll share the good news as well as the bad as we continue to work for the betterment of conservation and all the wild things we love. Ron Spomer signing off with the usual hunt honest and shoot straight. (music) 